My name is Ros Ward and you're listening to Red Flag Radio. We record the show on Indigenous land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, thank you for listening to Red Flag Radio. We do appreciate the support and we do have some people who help keep the show going with your financial contributions, although just as important really is uh, sharing these episodes if you listen and you like what you hear and you find it interesting um, do please share us around on your social media. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, sometimes I tweet things, sometimes it's witty, who knows? <laughs> but you can find out for yourself at Ros T. Ward on Twitter. Um, there's a nice little picture of me so you know it's the right person. Uh, and we can um, talk there as well if you want. Um, today we're going to be talking about a subject and a particular historical figure who has been coming up in discussion in the last few weeks a lot more than he normally does, although he is a pretty iconic figure mm. in history and in struggle and in anti-racist politics, and that is Malcolm X. Um, obviously, the context today of the massive uprising in the US against police racism, violence and brutality um, has made this really a pertinent thing to kind of look back on some of the politics of Malcolm X, some of the things that we hear as kind of snapshots of what he said, um, the kind of caricature of Malcolm X, I think, that's been created, and actually dig a little bit deeper and find out um, what he stood for and what his life was like and his legacy. We're really happy to be joined um, by a first, uh, long-time listener of Red Flag Radio, first-time guest, Kerry Park. Um, Kerry's been a socialist for 20 years. Uh, she's from the UK like me. You'll see our accents become more and more UK-ish <laughs> and less Australian as we talk to each other. Um, she worked full-time for the Anti-Nazi League. She worked um, for Love Music, Hate Racism. She's been involved in a lot of anti-racist struggles, politics, discussions and debates. So all of this is very familiar territory for Kerry. Um, she's now an activist in Sydney. She's an ASU uh, union member, and we're very happy to be joined by her to talk about Malcolm X. So let's begin at the beginning uh, with Malcolm X's life and sort of how did he come to be this figure, um, this kind of iconic activist, um, political operator and inspiration to people today? How did it all begin? Yeah, well, I think it does begin at the beginning, growing up black in the north of the United States in the 30s and 40s, just meant a life of poverty and racism. His parents were political activists, and as a result, their house was firebombed by the Ku Klux Klan. And five of Malcolm's seven uncles died by racist violence, and the KKK were also responsible for his father's death. They hit him over the head with a hammer and tied him to train tracks. And um, unbelievably, that death was ruled a suicide and um, because of that particular bit of racism and um, that meant that his life insurance policy didn't pay out. And so his mum ended up cracking under the strain of having to raise eight kids by herself and she ended up being admitted to a mental health institution and all the children were placed in care. 
Um, Malcolm ended up moving to Boston, where he talks about the rest of his childhood being completely filled with racism and being called the N-word countless times and so on. And in his autobiography, he remembers this particular moment of um, talking with one of his teachers, um, talking about wanting to be a lawyer when he grew up, and the teacher saying that was completely unrealistic and that he should just think about being a carpenter and something much more fitting for a black boy. Um, So it was his life, really, that politicised him, um, all told. Um, And in early adulthood, he ended up in jail, spent seven years in jail, which is where he discovered the Nation of Islam, something that seemed to give him all the answers he was looking for as to why his life was the way that it was. And the Nation of Islam told him that that was the fault of the white man. It's the white man who was consciously keeping him down, It was the white man who would do anything he could to keep his power. And it was the white man who somehow successfully managed to persuade black people that integration was the way forward. But it was likely to just be a trick, a ruse, a way of keeping black people in their place even longer. This is what the Nation of Islam told him, and it made sense to him. Um, But what it did do was propel him into action. And almost immediately, he started organising the uh, prisoners in jail, specifically the other Muslim prisoners, making sure they had access to the right food, were able to pray five times a day and so on. And when he left prison at the start of the 50s, he began preaching on street corners. And that was around the same sort of time that people in the South were also starting to get organised against the injustices of Jim Crow as well. Hmm. And you can see, I mean, just from that real brief history, but like the sort of immediate truth that um, it was white people basically who were responsible for every aspect of racism, every every wrong that had been done to him and his family and everyone he knew was at the hands of white people. So the, the politics of the Nation of Islam really kind of just um, connect with uh, people's real-life experiences, day-to-day experiences of racism over and over and over and over again. And also, you know, the the different kind of politics of hoping for gradual change and it never seeming to happen. Um, so Malcolm X then comes into contact with um, the sort of broader civil rights movement. So he's part of the Nation of Islam, but he's also obviously kind of uh, coming into that political life at a time when there's a concurrent um, civil rights movement. So what sort of things were going on there with the civil rights movement? What was What was that? campaign focused on at the time and how did he kind of intersect with that? Mm. Well, Jim Crow was like this set of laws that the leaders of the southern states of the US introduced after they lost the Civil War because they couldn't quite tolerate black and white legal equality once slavery was ended. They declared that black people were separate but equal, uh, supposedly, um, but black people were forced to use separate doors to enter buildings, separate drinking fountains, separate waiting rooms at bus and train stations, and importantly, were only allowed to sit at the back of buses and were required to give up their seat if none were available in the white section. So after decades of continuous everyday violence against black people, the civil rights movement began in earnest when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus for a white person 
launching the Montgomery bus boycott in December 1955. And this caused massive disruption, but um, also raised the issues of racism and segregation to a national and international stage. Mm. I think I was reading a bit about the, bo- the bus boycott and Rosa Parks and stuff, and it sort of Often it's mentioned and you get the impression that it just sort of came out of nowhere. One day she just kind of cracked it and was like, right, this is it. Mm. And suddenly was like, it sparked this whole thing or whatever. But actually it was an incredibly highly organized boycott in which, you know, some of the stuff that we do as activists today was exactly the same mm. then. That they printed out 30,000 leaflets. They went out, leafleted people, had to win people in arguments, went talking uh, to different kind of community influential community leaders prepared for it sort of organized their own transport system to kind of um get people around as they weren't using the buses like it was a highly organized and ended up lasting what was it 13 months or something really long um structured piece of activism but it did it was highly effective um because of that uh and it was the first time really that Martin Luther King kind of really comes into the scene of things. He was in Montgomery and was new there and was asked to help organise around some of this stuff. So Martin Luther King and Malcolm X are kind of often put side by side and compared and like, you know, there's a public holiday in America now for Martin Luther King Jr. um, But there isn't one for Malcolm X. So how, what's your take on kind of how their approaches differ and I guess how that's reflected um, in how they're perceived historically? Mm. Well, I think people will know that Martin Luther King's strategy was one of non-violent resistance as a way to end segregation. Um, and sometimes, well, certainly today, that's posited as, you know, he was just this peaceful guy. He didn't want to cause too much trouble. And, you know, he kind of wanted to, to, to do it in a kind of nice, peaceful, kind way. He was just this kind of nice man. But actually, you know, if you really read some of the stuff that he wrote and the things that he said, he actually did it quite deliberately as a way to show up, to, to show white society, to, to demonstrate the brutality that black people faced um, and as a way to, to appeal to, to people's better nature, to perhaps their moral sensibilities. They would just see that the treatment that black people got was wrong and would feel some kind of moral pressure to do something about it. Malcolm didn't really have much time for that. He thought that white society should just be rejected entirely um, and that was really the only way that black people would be free, none of this appealing to, to white people at all. Um, Now, the civil rights movement obviously did produce some great successes. Um, The sit-ins ended the segregation of the lunch counters, the freedom rides desegregated the interstate bus service. But Malcolm did tap into people's frustrations about just how long it all took. Like you said, the Montgomery bus boycott took 13 months to achieve its very simple, moderate goals. And even MLK was really surprised that those moderate demands would be so resisted by the state. So the slow and steady approach that was advocated by the likes of the Democrats really infuriated Malcolm. You know, he couldn't bear the idea that people were being attacked by the state with police dogs and fire hoses 
while they were just expected to wait patiently. Um, and the state would, who was attacking them, would somehow be the ones that would turn around and give them the justice that they deserved. It just didn't really make sense to him. He was for a much more direct approach and from the beginning saw the state as part of the problem. Mm. And I, I think, I mean, there's so many parallels with today from people saying now this was in the 1960s and now it's 2020 and we're still waiting for equal rights, even un under the law in some cases, but just equal treatment, like all of this kind of stuff. Um, and the frustration that people feel is the same frustration that Malcolm X felt and a lot of his followers and supporters. And so we see this same phrase that he used towards the end of his life um, being put on, put on placards today. It's probably his most famous um, four words that he ever said mm. that's repeated over and over. It's on T-shirts, you know, and placards. And I think sometimes people just sort of hear it and gloss over it. But by any means necessary, can you talk a bit about that phrase, where it comes from, kind of what that actually means? Mm. I mean, in some ways it's it's perfect it's a perfect little catchphrase because it just does what it says on the tin if you like he believed that oppressed people had the right to use whatever means that was at their disposal to fight the oppression that they faced so whether that was taking to the streets in mass numbers whether that was taking up arms whether that was using what some people might call violence anything that was at their disposal to get the human rights that they deserved to stop their oppression it really is that simple. He had a lot to say about racism. And for some, in some ways, for him, it was really quite straightforward. Give me the rights that I deserve as a human being. And if you won't, I will use whatever means at my disposal in order to get them. He wasn't really interested in uh, appealing to white moderates, getting people on side, being polite and civil and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so that's kind of where why I think also this phrase has has uh, endured, why it stood the test of time, why it's the thing that people remember most about him. He was um, really steadfast in in that approach of, of not really appealing to other people and just being, just kind of demanding what it was that he wanted. Um, and I think part of the reason that it endures, like you say, is that here we are in, in 2020 with a lot of the same problems, perhaps not uh, in legislation, but in reality, um, a lot of the same problems still exist. And so you end up with situations where black people are every day murdered by white racists, by the police, by the state in, in any number of countries around the world. And there are often flashpoints where one particular racist murder provokes outrage more than others, whether it's the brutality of it, like Emmett Till, a 14-year-old boy who was dragged from his bed and brutally murdered by white racists in 1955. If it's and they were the, all let off that as well, yeah, 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 completely, even though everybody knew who did it, you know, and there was, ne there was never going to be any justice for, for Emmett Till in that situation. Um, or there are situations when the police cover up their actions, like when they shot um, the Black Panther, Fred Hampton, in 1969. They lied about being shot at first. Um, and so they felt entitled to then shoot up his house, including his pregnant partner. Um, or whether it was caught on camera, like the murder of George Floyd. 
And I think all of those things, as we go through history, kind of tells us that all the things that Malcolm was talking about more than 50 years ago are still totally relevant to us today. And people, more and more people, I think, are like, well, we've tried the slow, steady, go through the proper channels approach. Why don't we try a bit of this by any means necessary approach? Let's see where that gets us. People are fed up, you know, saying enough is enough. We can't just reform ourselves out of racism. So let's see what Malcolm had to say about it all. Our comrades for Malcolm X and actually for Martin Luther King, I think something that um, we point to as revolutionary socialists is, is the development in their political thinking. So both of them actually, as they um, tried in their different ways, you know, the, the nonviolent um, MLK approach or the by any means necessary Malcolm X approach, both kind of came up against the same forces of the state, the same kind of connection between poverty and racism um, and to start thinking about the economic system, I guess. Um, so Malcolm X at, later in his life, uh, and I've got a quote from him here, said, it's impossible for a white person to believe in capitalism and not to believe in racism. You can't have capitalism without racism. And if you find one and you happen to get that person into a conversation and they have a philosophy that makes you sure they don't have racism in their outlook, usually their political philosophy is socialism. So Malcolm X and actually Martin Luther King at the end of his life both make a very clear connection to say actually racism is embedded and totally baked into the system of capitalism. And so if you want to get rid of racism, you're going to have to do something about the whole system of exploitation and oppression that is capitalism. So how did you think how do you think Malcolm X kind of got to that? Um and what was his kind of perspective on on that broader question then? Mm. I mean, it did it changed. You know, later on in his life, he was much more explicit about all of that. But even early on, I think he knew that the system couldn't be trusted. He knew that the problems of racism were deep. They were systemic. They were structural. They were part of society. And he knew that the supposed democracy of a capitalist free market economy didn't mean anything if you were black. Um, you know, he said, we don't see any American dream. We've experienced only the American nightmare. And I think, you know, that notion of the American dream that, you know, anyone can prosper if they just work hard enough, that ends up being a complete fallacy to the millions of black people with the knee of American racism on their necks. And it completely obscures the daily reality of their lives. Initially, though, early on in his political life, he and the Nation of Islam decided that their own form of capitalism was the solution, a black capitalism, so that black people could stop being exploited by white people as they had been for hundreds of years. But as his political ideas developed, he began to see that swapping white exploiters for black ones wasn't going to change ordinary black people's lives all that much at all. He recognised that the development of capitalism in the US needed racism to justify the ways enslaved black people were being treated. He knew they needed a way to justify the systematic kidnap, torture, forced labour, brutal conditions that they lived in 
So they just came up with, made up, literally just invented this idea that black people must be less worthy of rights, must be less worthy of decent treatment, must be less worthy of even being seen as a human being. It was literally invented. And he could see that black people had used scape, had been used as scapegoats for all of America's problems for centuries. And the thing that linked it all together, that was the economic system of capitalism. And he knew that the tactic of divide and rule kept the people at the top in power because those at the bottom were divided as a result of the racist rhetoric that, that was forced on them. And so when he traveled to Africa towards the end of his life, he saw white people who were committed to freedom, liberation, anti-racism. So all his old views were challenged. He realized that these white people were more, more often than not socialists, like you said in that quote, um, and they were just as committed to tearing down the whole system. So he, you know, he recognized that he needed to abandon all of that anti-white rhetoric so that he would be able to work with these people who had the same goal. Yeah, I mean, he's he is pretty well known, and at the time, um, the politics of the Nation of Islam were black nationalism, basically, and so that meant this whole idea of kind of a separate, um, like organizing a separate society that was black people without white people, and in some ways, he that was kind of the politics that he had in common, and in fact, I think there was something about him working with the KKK because they also agreed that black people and white people should be separate. So he was kind of, um, you know, he was accused of being a hate preacher and it was very easy for white people to say, well, this is all he's focused on is this black nationalism and hating white people and it's just divisive and all of that. So it's a pretty big break to go from that to saying actually – we need to work with white people in order to end racism. So how did that kind of come about? Mm. Yeah, I think that's, this is like the most interesting bit of his life in a way, as you look at that change, that look at that break. Um, like we talked about, like you said, you know, the Nation of Islam taught him all of these things, that the white man was responsible for all of the ills um, that black people faced in the US. Um, that the white man taught black people to hate themselves, um, forced them into a life of crime, uh, spread their vices through the community so that they were never going to be able to, to rise up and, and live decent lives. Um, and I don't think it's a massive leap to, to understand why he would think of white people as the enemy. Um, I think, you know, his childhood experiences attest to that. He lived his life as a black man in a racist world um, and he could see what else was happening in wider society as well. You know, peaceful protesters being attacked by the state, churches being bombed, resulting in the deaths of children, lynchings, all of it committed by white people, justified away by white people, sanctioned by a state and federal government of white people, as well as a white justice system that was quite frankly, pretty useless. Um, so he didn't trust white society. And even though he knew there were white people who were supportive of his cause, who were anti-racist, he was very clear for, for a good number of years that, like you say, black and white people just needed to organise separately. 
Now, I do, like I say, it's not a, a big leap to understand that, but only to an extent, really, because I don't think he was ever really going to win. I don't think black people, I don't think any movement is ever going to win if it's based on only a small number of people being organised. And by the end of his life, I think Malcolm could see that as well. Um, and I think that last year of his life is worth talking about for, for a little bit because it's not really the, the bit that people hear much about. You know, they, we always talk about the hate preacher, the reverse racist, the, you know, the black nationalist bit and, and so much less about that last bit of his life. Um, so towards the end of 1963, he got into a bit of trouble with the Nation of Islam after saying that the chickens have come home to roost after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Um, the Nation of Islam had expressly told him not to make any statement about the assassination because um, they didn't want... Uh, any attention on them really they didn't want him to be engaged so forthrightly in politics and um, so they censored him for 90 days he wasn't allowed to speak publicly he didn't really want to stick to that rule and so formally broke with them soon afterwards for for a long time he could really appreciate that the nation of islam could deal with the the moral decay of the black community by encouraging you know faithfulness in their relationships you know, to stop people getting drunk and taking drugs and all of that sort of thing. But he also knew that it wasn't enough. After they sobered up, they'd still be poor and discriminated against. And what he really wanted was the Nation of Islam to give the community the political confidence to fight the injustices they faced at a systemic level. Um, but the abstentionist policy that he was met with at various points of his political life from the Nation of Islam didn't change at all you know whenever he tried organizing from that very first time in prison even it was always despite the nation of islam's leadership rather than at their request um so an example that you know you can think of is the march on washington martin luther king's march on washington in august 1963 very famously he calls that the farce on washington but even though he did that he still went to washington he still joined the march, talked to the organisers. He knew that he needed to be intervening on that terrain that was gaining traction amongst ordinary people. He wanted to be where the action was. And for him, I think he, he viewed talking about separatism as a way to critique the system that showed no interest in serving the interest of people like him, of the majority of people, ordinary people, black or white, actually. But the leader of the Nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad, insisted on him not intervening in politics in that way. And I think it has to be noted that that's partly because he was financially benefiting from the way that the Nation of Islam was, was set up. He was increasing his wealth, was a massive advocate of that black capitalism. So, you know, didn't really want too much attention being brought um, to them. And um, so you can see that the split, that break from the Nation of Islam was a really crucial turning point for him. It meant that he was free to think for himself and draw different conclusions. And while he remained a Muslim, he began organising politically on a secular basis. Firstly, organising uh, with different black people, regardless of their religious denomination, and then uniting with black and white people, whoever wanted to fight racism. Um, and it was the, the split from the Nation of Islam, plus 
a trip to Africa in that last year of his life where he visited places like Kenya and Ghana and Algeria. And he met revolutionaries who were light-skinned. He undertook the pilgrimage to Mecca where he prayed with uh, white people, white Muslims, who called him brother. This astounded him, the idea that he could have brotherhood with white people like this. Um, and it was the anti-colonial, anti-imperialist struggles uh, in Africa that produced revolutionaries who challenged his ideas of white people being inherently bad and also helped flesh out his ideas about where power lay in society, who held all the power. Was it all white people or was it a certain section of people? Um, and, and therefore, you know, you could kind of, he therefore starts to look at what kind of society you need in order to, to challenge racism in order to have a, a society without racism completely, is that by just getting a piece of land, living separately from white people within capitalism, or does it mean tearing the whole thing to the ground and starting again? Um, and once he'd returned to the US after this trip, he formed the Organization for Afro-American Unity based on the Organization for African Unity that he'd seen there, wanting to bring the politics of anti-imperialism into the US in the hope that then people in America could then offer solidarity and support to the struggles in Africa and, and kind of also help uh, get some of this politics as well, where you can kind of start to see, have some of these different ideas and, and for other people to start to see really where the power in society lies. Mm. And I think that, you know, that international experience also puts uh, the experiences in the US into context for him in terms of sort of there's this international structure of power and domination that's bigger than just America and that there are there's these international um, organizations of resistance that look beyond the borders of individual countries as well. So even that whole idea of nationalism is very different in an um, anti-imperialist struggle in Africa than it is a black nationalist movement in the United States. It raises all these different kinds of questions for him. And all of these debates really are still extremely familiar, you know, the, the kind of the strategic stuff around Martin Luther King, around nonviolence, about how you resist, how you organize, who you organize with, and what are the most important um, organizing kind of uh, lines and structures and so on about identity, about um, race, how it intersects with class, how solidarity works, what does it mean to be a white person who supports or is an active anti-racist and not just not a racist. All of those questions are the questions that we're having today. Um, so why does his experience matter and sort of what can we learn from that now in these debates? Mm. I think it's so interesting actually how these debates seem to come up again and again. You know, I remember talking to my mum who was an active anti-racist campaigner in the 70s and 80s and she talked about all of this stuff about, um, you know, oppressed groups leading the charge and there was less stuff about class and it was kind of all about sort of identity politics. comes up again when I was at university in the mid-90s and it seems to be coming up again now. Um, 
because I think, you know, in some ways it, they are kind of complex things and I think people come at it from a good uh, starting point. But I think we need to see that that approach of, let's say, like just black people uh, organising um, or any kind of organising on, on the base, basis of an oppression ignores the, the class and political divides within an oppressed group. Because I think we think that class is the major dividing line in society. Um, you know, that bit has to get taken into account when you think about who it is that you're organising with and then who the enemy is. Um, so, you know, this idea of black faces in high places, you know, we're not just talking about people like Barack Obama or, um, you know, or any attorneys general or, you know, whoever. It's also about a whole strategy, a whole way of fighting the system actually just ends up meaning meaning breaking the glass ceiling for some individuals. Um, and that, of course, is quite an inadequate demand for the black working class whose lives are totally different from those of the, of the black middle class. Um, I think if you look at a situation like what we've got happening at the moment with the massive impact of COVID-19 and the resulting mass unemployment in the States, you know, you can think that the black workers there have so much more in common with the millions of Latinx and white workers than they do with other sections of black people, you know, other people who might be sitting out there isolation in, you know, multi-million dollar houses or whatever, rather than people who are on the front line having to work in supermarkets or in hospitals. Um, their lives are, are really com completely different. So I think any refusal to work with the non-oppressed parts of society are qu just quite counterproductive, really. I don't think, you know, women can't successfully fight against sexism or misogyny by themselves. The LGBTQI community can't face, can't fight against homophobia and transphobia by themselves. Muslims can't fight against Islamophobia by themselves and people of colour can't fight against racism by themselves either. And I think, you know, you can see again what's happening at the moment. The, the current uprisings in the US, I think, are made all the more powerful and effective precisely because they are so multiracial. You know, all across the country we're seeing Thousands and thousands of people of all races and genders saying enough is enough. Can we stop killing black people, please? Is it time now for the US to properly confront its racist history and its present, actually, for that matter? And, you know, it's seriously worrying those at the top of society because the majority of people are, are in support of the demands. And I think as long as racism still divides us, solidarity between working class people of all races is always going to be important because I think it's the only way we're going to win. Mm, agree. Yes, yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and I think you're right that it does, it worries people at the top more um, when there is that kind of united solidarity across race and gender and sexuality lines and especially when it's people who are so important to the running of the system, which is why particularly, you know, the strikes and the actions where frontline healthcare workers have joined in have really fucking been smashed. And just there was a video recently of a woman in France who was a nurse who was brutally beaten up by the police because, um, you know, and they're campaigning around the same things. They're campaigning about racism in France as well. Um, but it's, 
it's a threat um, to the system when working class people unite um, and take action together. And I think Malcolm X starts to come to that conclusion too when he's thinking, well, where do we have the power? Like what can we do, you know, to get rid of this system? And it can't just be moving to the side of it somewhere or having our own structures just as black people or, you know, even having the whole continent of Africa as just like a black space and get rid of everyone else because that's not possible in this system that relies on a whole-scale international, um, like, organisation of exploitation. So that if there was one or two things to f- finish with about his sort of the take-home points of Malcolm X, what do you reckon it is that people should take as his legacy, the best parts of his legacy? Mm. That's a really good question because I think there's so much, but mm, two or three. Okay, so the first one I think is he, for me anyway, I think he's the absolute epitome of how ideas change through struggle. You know, he wasn't this fully formed revolutionary to begin with, but you can see how he had this dialectical relationship with the movement. You know, he instinctively knew that he needed to be part of it, even though he had criticisms of it. You know, he kept talking with people, hearing other people's ideas, and his politics always evolves as he's doing that. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, I think another thing is his this idea of him not really wanting to appeal to the establishment. Um, I think he knew from really early on that the Democrats weren't going to be anybody's saviors. Um, and that was true back then and it's true today. Um, and they've, the Democrats have come to rely on people of colour and the working class more broadly for, for votes come election time. And I'm fairly certain that they'll be doing the same again come November. But I, I don't know that they've done much to, to earn that, really. Um, and I think that black people and uh, Latinx people and other people of colour and the whole working class really um, actually need to remember Malcolm's observation that you put the Democrats first and the Democrats put you last um, because, you know, they're putting big business first. They're never putting us first, um, regardless of what they might say in reality. And they're it's the never party us. of <laughs> slavery in the South. Like, I don't understand how that history doesn't still matter. Yeah. Yeah, I think more and more people Indeed. will get that now. Like, yeah, that's why the whole like going around looking at statues of people and what mm. they fucking stood for, and then oh look, you know, Democrats, Confederates, yeah. slave owners, mm. like the party of white supremacy in the South was the Democrats. Mm. That was mm-hmm. their logo in some places, yeah. like this chicken that said white supremacy above it. That was the logo of the Democrats <laughs> in Alabama, like. Anyway, yeah. No, it's cra- like yeah. it's crazy, really. Like, yeah, and I think you're right. I think that idea of, of the, the movement around the statues and stuff isn't just symbolic, even and even that would be fine. But it's it is also about remembering that history and kind of saying to people, remember who these people are and where they came from, and and who who is it that, that whose whose side were they on? Um. So so yeah, kind of not really putting. Um, too much allegiance with the Democrats. I think that's um, that's an important important part of his legacy. Um, and so, and then I think the last thing would be 
about remembering that we we have the majority of people on our side um, and that the idea of fighting means that you stand a chance of winning and if because if you don't fight you lose you will definitely lose um, but if you do fight you stand a chance of winning and by the end of his life Malcolm wanted as many people fighting that fight as possible and he was quite optimistic actually he was quite hopeful particularly around young people um, and and kind of seeing how things were different as as generations were were going by um, and and had this quote which I think is is lovely and I think um, kind of really sums up in some ways what's happening in the US at the moment um, and he said I believe that there will ultimately be a clash between the oppressed and those that do the oppressing. I think that there will be a clash between those who want freedom, justice and equality for everyone and those who want to continue the systems of exploitation. It is incorrect to classify the revolt of the Negro as simply a racial conflict of black against white or as a purely American problem. Rather, we are today seeing a global rebellion of the oppressed against the oppressor the exploited against the exploiter. Yeah. And even if you remember, like, you know, before COVID-19, if somebody asked me the other day what life was like before coronavirus, and I was like, is that February? I've got no idea, <laughs> actually. I cannot remember. But one thing I do remember about pre-coronavirus was all the different uprisings that were happening all around the world towards the end of 2019. And I think that's the sort of stuff that Malcolm was talking about towards the end of his life that he was really hopeful, hopeful for. And, you know, we see glimmers of it every now and then. And, and I think we're seeing it again in the US right now of people saying those people who've been oppressed and exploited for too long are rising up and they're saying enough of this. Um, and and I think that the one other thing I might have said that that was the last thing. This is the last thing I promise. Um, was that I think if you think how you th how what you think the problem is determines what you think the solution is. So if you think that the problem of racism is individual white people and their attitudes, then your solution will be something like encouraging white people to engage in some kind of anti-racist education getting a better understanding of what it's like for black people, engaging, you know, real empathy and that sort of thing. Or perhaps to uh, organise completely separately from white people altogether. However, if you think the problem of racism is capitalism, then your solution will be about dismantling capitalism altogether and creating a better world for everyone. And I think one of the really tragic things is that we'll never truly know where Malcolm would have ended up if He'd had time to fully develop his ideas. But I think, you know, you can see how much he changed in that last year of his life, last 11 months, really. You know, he left the Nation of Islam in March 1964 and was killed in February 1965. In just those 11 months, you could see how he's a world away from that anti-white, black nationalist hate preacher that we always seem to hear so much about. Mm. Yeah. Um... I mean, that quote and that is amazing about the global rebellion of the oppressed against the oppressor, the exploited against the exploiter. Like, that is what we saw at the end of 2019. It's what we're seeing coming out of America and it's spreading and hopefully it will continue. And in those struggles of the oppressed against the oppressor and of the exploited against the exploiter, absolutely 
by any means necessary. Still stands. Um, Kerry, thank you so much for coming on Red Flag Radio. You're an instant friend of the show. (laughs) (laughs) You get a badge. We're going to make some. How exciting. I've been such a big fan of the podcast. It's so exciting to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, we'll have you back very soon. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. Thanks, Liam Ward in the chair. Um, And we hope you will join us next time. We have a world to win.